Hi, in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is On Death by Khalil Gibran. You would know the secret of death, but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life? The owl whose night-bound eyes are blind unto the day cannot unveil the mystery of light. If you should indeed behold the spirit of death, open your heart wide unto the body of life. For life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. In the depth of your hopes and desires lies your silent knowledge of the beyond, and like seeds dreaming beneath the snow, your heart dreams of spring. Trust the dreams, for in them is hidden the gate of eternity. Your fear of death is but the trembling of the shepherd when he stands before the king whose hand is to be laid upon him in honor. Is the shepherd not joyful beneath his trembling, and he shall wear the mark of the king? Yet he is not more mindful of his trembling. For what it is to die but to stand naked in the wind and to melt into the sun? And what is it to cease breathing but to free the breath from its restless tides that it may rise and expand and seek God unencumbered? Only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And when you have reached the mountaintop, and then you shall begin to climb. And when the earth shall claim your limbs, you shall truly dance. Today I'm speaking with Dana Trent. She's an ordained Baptist minister, and she's also an author who really makes our lives much more bearable as we deal with grief. She is the author of Dessert First, Preparing for Death While Savoring Life. So Dana, do you find that people in general are really quite resistant when they speak about grief? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and Elizabeth, thank you so much for that introduction. My my heart was just fluttering as you read that because I read that passage at my mother's bedside as she was dying, and I could feel my grief bubble up, but in a beautiful way, in a way that shows that I have loved deeply and I loved her deeply. But I think to your question, we, we are hesitant to talk about it because it's painful and we have to be vulnerable. And we live in a culture that does not um, perpetuate um, a code of vulnerability. Instead, things are shiny and perfect and look glamorous on social media. And so to be vulnerable, to, to grieve, is to, is, to not, is to be un-American in many ways. Do you find, as your work as a hospice worker, that you find families still, even in that moment where death is really in their face, that there's a little bit of, I guess, uncomfort, um, trying to be human, trying to be with things, but still, that level of grief, is they're still quite resistant to it? They, they are at first. Certainly. What, what I found in my work as a hospital chaplain, and, and I've sat with about 200 patients as they transitioned from life to death right at that threshold moment over, one, over the course of a year. And I found that you're right. Families do tend to be resistant up until those last few hours or moments. And it's actually the dying person that invites them into a space of comfort, 
and assurance and strength and peace, which is really profound. It's quite profound that it's, it's, the, it's the patient, it's the person making the journey that is at ease and that helps put others at ease with, the, with death and with grief. Mm. What are the, the gold final words of passing that you mentioned? You talk about forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, I love you, and goodbye. How did that resonate in your life and where did that come from for you? Oh my goodness, yes. Those those words that you just said come from dessert first. And I actually I found those words written on a piece of paper in my mother's Bible after she died. I did not find them before, which is so strange because we had her Bible bedside during her entire transition. But I did find that in many ways we said all those things and she said all those things. It was funny. I loved your your episode with um, with Dr. Smart, who's the the linguistics person who talked about the final words, and she spoke about the euphemisms or the the imagery we might use at, in those final moments. And one of the last things my mother said was, "The gas will be gone soon. The did, gas will be gone soon." Did you know what that was? I did. It's soon as she uttered it, I knew that she meant that she was running on empty. You know, I, I think of the song, running on empty, and that, you know, the life was going to be gone from her soon. And so it was time for us to say all of the things that we needed to say to one another. Forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. And we said that many, many times over in many different ways in those last two weeks. Did you find that you ministered as your mom's hospice chaplain while she was going through this? Mm, you know, I, I did. That's that's a great question. There was a dualism, certainly, of chaplain and grieving daughter. My work as a as a death chaplain, which was is the nickname that that my particular unit gave me, my work as the death chaplain was exhausting because of its volume, and my work, quote unquote, with my mother was exhausting because of its proximity. And so, playing those dual roles of wanting wanting to give my mother a good, peaceful death and knowing how to do it because my patients taught me how to do it but also feeling deeply, uh, you know, as you read that pas- passage from Khalil Gibran, I just, I could, I was right back there at the bedside. I could see her face. I could feel, feel the room, feel the warmth of her hand. And I was right there, the grieving daughter, but also the chaplain, that dual role at her bedside. Yeah, that must've been extremely tricky because even though you have answers, you still have a heart, you're still a daughter. I find too that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your admission that you still attended many months of hospice grief groups after your mother passed. And people might say, but gosh, you're a hospice worker. You're a chaplain. Don't you have all the answers? And isn't that interesting to find out that we are really all in this together? We don't have all the answers. <laughs> Our hearts still hurt, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Elizabeth. Yes. And, and as a mortician, you know, you, you work in this industry every day and you encounter it. And we, even though we're in it and it becomes, you know, in many ways, ways normalized for us in many ways, it, even though um, it's never normal, it's always sacred, it's always beautiful, it's never mundane, but you do have to find ways to practice radical self-care. And I was fortunate that I, you know, was able to have 13 months of hospice 
um, grief counseling, in addition to my own um, therapist whom I've, whom I've been seeing for 10 years. But that's privilege. I mean, that's certainly to have access to that care financially and also just by virtue of where I live. That's a privilege that many, many, many Americans and people around the globe do not have. They don't have the space to grieve and to grieve well. You mentioned radical self-care. Something that's happening here on the West Coast is we're really changing how palliative care and hospice nurses and people really get their, you know, overhaul group companies to work with them. They're really trying to give them free smoking cessation and help them with, you know, breastfeeding classes, grief, meditation, all of those sort of things. That's a real big part of what we're doing. Do you find that peace is traveling across the country and making its way out east or are we just being progressive over here? Oh, well, I love that you're being so progressive. In fact, you, you are certainly a huge part. You, you, Elizabeth Fournier, are a huge part of what I would call the positive death movement. And that's certainly present on the West Coast. And I do think it is showing up here on the East Coast out of necessity, quite frankly, because we are in the midst of what my death mentor called the great death tsunami, which Mm. means that we are on the brink of the baby boomers aging. And that means that at its peak in 1999, there were 79 million baby boomers born 1946 to 64. Now there are 72 million baby boomers. And by 2030, all of the baby boomers will be 65 years older or older which means we're facing, we're facing all of these urgent questions, healthcare, palliative care, aging in place. Um, what are we going to do? And so we're going to have to talk about it as a culture, even though since, you know, the late 1920s, it's, it's been about let's talk about something more pleasant, right? Um, but with 7,400 Americans dying each day, and that's just going to increase, We've got to address this, and we have to address it now. I'm speaking today with Dana Trent. Her book is Dessert First, Preparing for Death While Savoring Life. Dana, I really appreciate your practical tips for having the conversation around end-of-life care and why having it sooner rather than later is really the right thing to do. Oh, it is. Uh, I mean, Elizabeth, you know, as a mortician, I mean, you encounter, I'm, I'm certain, families who are prepared and families who are not prepared. And my death mentor stint said, the greatest gift that we can give our children and our grandchildren, our loved ones, is to have the conversation. And so I offer readers a myriad of ways to have that conversation and to have it in kind of a funny way, a lighthearted way, which is, you know, the purpose of the, the book's title, Dessert First. And first and foremost, I say the number one strategy is to blame it on me, blame it on the author, you know, just say I've been, I heard this podcast with this crazy lady who's 38 and she's planned her own funeral. And, you know, I just wondered mom and dad kind of what you might be thinking about for your funeral um, or your green burial or your cremation or, you know, and your parents, grandparents, whomever may guffaw at that. But you've planted a seed and that there might be an opportunity at the dinner table two weeks later where someone will tell a story and, and you'll learn something. You'll, you'll get a breadcrumb of what your loved ones want and need at the end of life. So you're the crazy 38-year-old who has planned your own funeral? 
I am. That's me. Okay. What you got? Lay it out for us. So I am to be cremated. And of course, you know, you plan all this, but funerals are for the living. So my husband, Fred, can do whatever he wants. But I have written it out um, that I am to be cremated. I have specific areas that I want to be um, spread, and I've given those to my husband. And I also want what I call a funeral. So instead Mm. of a funeral, a funeral, (laughs) which means that I want people to gather and eat good food and laugh and tell stories and, you know, make fun of me if they want, roast. Um, whatever, whatever they want to do together, because um, it'll be about community. I want it to be about grief. Um, I want a little ACDC back, back in black in <laughs> my funeral. Um, and also, you know, so that's kind of the fun part. But I also have all the practical and legal paperwork completed as well, and my obituary is written. So everything is done. So that Fred can just be, that's what I, that's the gift I want to leave with him. No decisions need to be made. He knows what level of care I would want in various situations. He knows what to do with my body afterward, the obits written. All he has to do is just be present with me at the time of death, hopefully, and to be present in his grief and in his care for himself. So I love everything you said. I love how you're putting the emphasis on fun and you're really putting the fun back in funeral, but how you've laid everything out. You've thought about what would please you. You're also thinking foremost about the people in your life. They're the ones who are left behind. The funeral really is for the living. It's how are they going to find their new normal? And I like how you said, look, we're just trying to, I'm trying to help you out here by putting this together and also letting him know that the plans are malleable, right? Because I think John Lennon had it best where he said, um, Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. You know, you say, okay, well, okay. You know, I'm going I'm to die here and I'm going to be wearing my favorite nightgown and I'll be having soft music <laughs> and all this, but maybe it won't be that beautiful and wonderful. It's going to be, you know, on a, right. on a floor someplace or it's going to be in a, a nursing home or something you didn't expect. So I, right. there's so much in your book that's really fantastic. Not only are you a reverent, devout, wonderful human, but you're fun. And I talked to you a little bit about that before we were on the air. I was asking my guest, Dana Trent, I was saying, you're a very fun um, Baptist minister. And you and it's great because not only are you putting the fun back in funeral, but you're putting the fun back in spirituality. Because ultimately, spirituality is just two people having a conversation and realizing that uh, there's a little bit more to us than just two people in the room. There's more going on there. Um, could you tell us what is it like for you to be a Baptist minister? Mm. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for those kind words. I, I really appreciate that. And my, I've had a very circuitous path. It's just, it's been a wild ride. And that's why, you know, I think about if I were to die tomorrow, I have had a rich, full life. And being a Baptist minister has been certainly one of my paths and, and identities. But also, I am world religions professor. I am wife. I hope I'm a good friend. Um, and I hope that I try to smile a lot and, and help others. And so I think being a helper, being someone who loves people deeply and cares about them deeply, that that has been my entire life's purpose. And, and being a Baptist minister was my outlet for finding that life's purpose. And so I knew 
um, when I was actually, I was ordained at age 21, which is almost unheard of to be that young and be ordained. But it was, it was my church family who saw those gifts in me of mercy and encouragement and empathy and said, you know what? We think, we think you're ready for this. We think you're ready to be a minister, which was very sweet and very affirming. And from there has led me to be a chaplain and now a professor where I'm in a, a different kind of nurturing environment with very much alive students who, who are, you know, 18, 19, 20, and think that they are never going to die either. And they think I'm never going to die. And so, you know, we have fun with that. And I tell them, Hey, you know, I might not be here next week. And they, Oh, they're like, Oh, quit, quit playing. You're being so silly. But it, it helps open the door to some serious questions about in the terms of world religions, Baptist Christianity included, what do these traditions have to say about where we are going after death, and how do we, what spiritual practices do we use now to prepare for that? And so it's a great conversation starter in the classroom as well. Your book, it's really user-friendly, and it's really teachable, I think, for small groups or retreats or individuals or in the classroom. What I really like in the back is you break out the practical and spiritual resources, and you go through and you have something called Resource One, Conversation Starters, and going on to the next one, the practical and legal preparations. What made you know the realism of having this broken out for people just so easy would be really the best move? Oh. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you. And again, coming coming from a mortician in your industry, that that means the world to me because that was that was the purpose of it. And actually, it was not a purpose that I saw. It was in my editor's choice, and she was just com- so amazing. And essentially, what happened is that she she said the storytelling in this book is so important. We want to keep the thread going because there's two narratives here in the book, the narrative of hospital chaplaincy and the narrative of my mother's death. And what we wanted to do for the reader was to invite them on that journey of death and grief so that they could see how it mirrored anything going on in their life as well. But we also knew that we wanted to equip them. So we wanted to do a memoir with utility. We wanted to leave them with tools, practical tools that they could come back to the book again and again and again and say, you know what? I don't remember how I was supposed to do that. How do I, where do I start on that? So the resources section, we, my editor said, let's, let's put that in the back separate for folks. So that they literally, when they finish reading the story, they literally have a step-by-step guide on how to make a plan. And so that was our that was our game plan. And it sounds like you know, at least from your reading, it, it worked. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you. You bet. Absolutely. The compliments are definitely justified. You've done a fantastic job with the storytelling. Like you say, you're breaking it up. It's you really walking people through hundreds of journeys from life to death, Mm. also having the sojourn of being the devoted daughter walking with your mom, and also, you know, the savoring life, you do a lot of the savoring life. Tell us about Stimp the Death Pimp. Oh, yes. Stimp the Death Pimp. It is was my death mentor. He is now deceased, but he's always with me. I met on a whim, a friend, a mutual friend introduced us and we became fast friends and Stimp was a hospice chaplain. He was a Presbyterian minister with a Buddhist practice who lived 
every second like it was his last. And when I mean that, I, I mean, when I say that, I really mean it. His mantra was joy. And he said joy, I bet you, at least 5,000 times a day. He was just, it, he, he exuded joy. And he also exuded, you know, lots of, of good, memorable mantras for us, including, you know, all we have is this moment. All we have is this moment. And so every conversation would be sprinkled with all we have is this moment. A little reminder that, hey, Dana, none of us is getting out of here alive. The death rate is still 100%. Hmm. So all you and I have is this moment right now. You know, it's a little reminder, but it's such a huge reminder. Tell us about your Ashes to Ashes road tour. Oh, so this is this is what I hope also makes dessert first accessible. It makes it maybe a little funny because death can be a little funny. Um, we cremated my mother in a sunset scatter urn that is about four pounds, and so you can hold it like an infant, and it's just it's very portable. And I'll never forget the mortician taking it out to the car for me for the first time. I went to go pick up mom after she was cremated and he very gently and thoughtfully buckled her into the passenger seat of my Honda Civic. I do that too. That's a mortician thing. (laughs) I love it. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because it was so tender and one and nothing I would have ever thought of, but he just by doing that ritual, and I would call it a ritual because it made meaning, he launched this entire Ashes to Ashes road tour where now we, we seatbelt mom in, we buckle her in, and we'll take her to the beach, we'll take her to the park, we'll take her to Wendy's, you know, through the drive through to get her a frosty. And so her Ashes to Ashes Road Tour has meant that she still travels with us in this very tangible form. Um, And it's also really fun, and it makes it light, and we tell stories about it. And I think it makes, you know, it makes things accessible for people. Um, And it's it's just a a really good time. And it's also a great, you know, theft deterrent for any vehicle. I don't think anyone's going to steal a vehicle with cremated remains buckled in the passenger seat. That's how I feel when I have my van. My funeral van is black and it doesn't have the markings of the funeral home. I went to a concert at a casino of all things a couple weekends ago and I had the the uh, van in the parking lot and I said to my husband, you know, I feel like it's just this Saturday night, it's in a parking lot and he said, honey, there's a gurney in there. People are going to look in the window, they're going to see that and say, I'm getting out of here. So that happens. It's so true. It's so true. Yes. I know, Elizabeth, I feel like I have a million questions I want to ask you. This is just, it's such an interesting industry and profession and spiritual gift, quite frankly, to be a mortician. Well, it's your interview. So if there's something you want to ask, you go for it. <laughs> right. This is, this is incredible. I mean, it's great to know that there are other morticians. It sounds like it is a mortician thing to seat belt in the cremated remains. So that's something that you have done before, it sounds like. Yes. And it's interesting that this mortician you work with walked you walked your mom out to the car, because I think, again, that's something that is an extra special step that they took, which I thought was really neat. You know, it's really reading with the family and find out does the when you first come out, 
into the you know main room and say here here's so and so is urn or however you're going to do it i think sometimes there's that first shock of oh my gosh you know we never say things like oh i'm going to get your mom and i'll be right back with your mom because in your mind your mom is going to be walking arm in arm with us we kind of say no this is what we're bringing out this is what we're doing and it depends on the reaction so obviously you received this okay enough for that person to feel comfortable to say, well, let me go ahead and assist you out to the car, which was nice on there. And, but also you did a wonderful job too, by just accepting that, okay, this is where we are and we've got a road toward to take and, you know, on to the next step. And obviously I can tell by talking to you, uh, you're a kind human, but you're also a very spiritual being because you seem very settled in so much of this. So that's a wonderful gift you're giving to listeners as well as the rest of humanity. Thank you. You bet. Thank you so much for that. With the road trip. Now, if you wanted to get the Frosty for mom, did you ever actually bring her into Wendy's and maybe put her down on the seat next to you or the table like some people do at a bar? Or was that, is it too personal for you to take mom or were you worried about offending or upsetting others? What were your thoughts? That's a great, great question. Um, I haven't gotten to the step where I would take her inside a public place and, and set her down. And I think for me, that would, it's, um, it, it would certainly be acceptable because she is in an urn. She is contained, of course. So, you know, in terms of any concerns anybody would have, sanitation, et cetera. But I, I think it's that I'm still very aware that our culture is very timid about all of this. That people are just, you know, even touching an urn. I have a little portable urn that I took with me this summer. I took mom to Indiana because she had lived there for a long time. And, you know, I was the only one that would touch her, that would hold the urn. So I still think that people have, there's a lot of um, taboo surrounding the body and green burial and regular burial and cremation. We just aren't comfortable with the idea that that we are souls who live in a temporary body and that the body dies. And I think unless you've had the experience you and I both have, which you and I have both seen a lot of death, it's hard to get comfortable with that. And so I think for the average person sitting in Wendy's eating a salad, it's going to be awkward, right? Yeah. And I think it's also kind of you. It's sort of your private journey and that's nice that mom can be a part of it, but also it's, yeah, it's, it's yours too. That's nice. That's right. And we take pictures. We take pictures and we do put them on Instagram at J. Dana Trent. So people can always, you know, keep up with um, where we are on our Ashes to Ashes road tour with mom. I love it. If anybody else wants to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Do you have a place for someone to look if they say, hey, I, want, I really want to work with this person or have her write something for us? How do we find you? Oh, that's very gracious. Yes, my... My website is jdanatrent.com, and then all of my social media handles are at jdanatrent and jdanatrent author on Facebook. Excellent. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you so very much to my lovely guest, Dana Trent. She is the author of Dessert First, Preparing for Death While Savoring Life. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.